The old adage from Bill Clinton's campaign, it's the economy, stupid, has never been more appropriate. Well, if you look at what Mr. Trump is saying, he's saying those words. It's the economy, stupid. This week, the race for the White House. And it's the economy, stupid. We look at the policies that could shape the next four years in the United States. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to Is the Economy Stupid? We are today back with my friend, the young blood, it's Joe. Hey, everybody, I'm very excited to be back, particularly very exciting for this episode. I think, uh, I think our guest will be explodingly stimulating. Great. Hi, Joe. For all of you who don't remember, I'm Damien, and last time I talked to you, Joe, about a subject that was uh, pretty interesting, I would say. It was, do you remember? Of course I do, Damien. It was about carbon taxes. That's right. I did, a, I did an introduction on carbon taxes for all of you who might not be familiar with the subject and would like to learn more on how does exist around the world, what their extent or how they differ from a cap-and-trade system, just go back. It was published two weeks ago. Have a listen and um, tell us what you think. We, as always, published every two weeks on all podcasting platforms and also published on our Instagram. So if you want to subscribe to those or just want to check out um, to know when our episodes come up, just check out those links. Uh, we are everywhere under either for the podcast, Is the Economy Stupid? And for the Instagram, it's Rethinking Economics Bocconi. So, Joe, it seems that today's episode might be a bit controversial, doesn't it? Yeah, Damien, actually, um, a large part of today's episode is going to focus on uh, the use of psychedelics. Now, uh, psychedelics are a class of hallucinogenic drugs that tend to alter the consumer's mindset and lead to the experience of non-ordinary states of consciousness, the most popular of which are MDMA, magic mushrooms, LSD, peyote, and DMT. Now, see, a great number of people claim that these currently illegal drugs have been misidentified and misunderstood, and that these substances could complement modern medicine. Wow, that's impressive. But of course, we have to remember that having the proper research to either disprove or back up this claim is essential for any future reasonable policymaking. Because if true, these substances might help advance the way we approach physical, mental, and emotional well-being. Today's episode is going to be focused on the research currently done on MDMA and psilocybin. Psilocybin is the main component of a drug you might know as LSD or even acid as well as the main component of magic mushrooms. We're particularly going to concentrate on the role of health economists in trying to quantify the complete effects of all these substances, as well as designs of accurate, cost-effective models to enhance clinical efficiency and to access to these therapeutic treatments for those in need. But what's good for us, Joe, is that, as you already mentioned, we have a guest in line to talk to us about this subject. Can you tell our listeners who that guest is? Indeed we do, Damien. Indeed we do. We have, uh, again, I don't want to, I don't want to give away too much, but I do think this episode is going to be interesting to say the least. Um, our guest today is Dr. Elliot Marseille. He has over 35 years of experience in health economics. He is the course director for course for cost effectiveness analysis in medicine and public health at the University of California, San Francisco. 
He is the president of Health Strategies International, a health economics consulting firm. And Dr. Elliot has worked widely on the cost effectiveness of a variety of global health diseases with a special focus on HIV and AIDS. Um, but his current focus has shifted to the economics of psychedelic assisted therapies, modeling the economics of MDMA assisted psychotherapy for the treatment of PTSD and psilocybin assisted therapy for the treatment of major depression and tobacco cessation. As such, Dr. Elliot was made the director of the Global Initiative for Psychedelic Sciences, which is a joint project by University of California, Berkeley and San Francisco. Dr. Elliot, thank you for being here today on Is the Economy Stupid? My pleasure. I'm really glad to have this opportunity. Um, doctor, before we start, actually, um, as we said in the introduction, you have more than 35 years of experience in uh, health economics, yet, correct me if I'm wrong, most of your early studies were on, let's say, more traditional diseases. Um, what, led, what led to the shift of uh, you studying psychedelic-assisted uh, therapy in particular? Yeah, as, as you say, this is a, a major shift for me. Most of my career has been devoted to looking at the economics of various global health interventions, with a major focus on HIV. And I was actually on a glide path to retirement. I was taking on less and less work. Uh, and then I was, uh, I'm a burner. So at Burning Man, oh, I, you know, the years kind of blur together with COVID, but I think it must have been 2018. Huh. I, uh, I had a chance encounter with Rick Doblin, who is the founder and director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. And let me just give you a little bit of the context for this meeting. I volunteer at Burning Man at a project called Zendo, which is uh, supported by MAP. And it's a retreat for people who are undergoing uh, an extreme mental or emotional challenge. Some of them are totally sober. Being at Burning Man can be very challenging for some people. I think it's actually challenging for everybody, at least at moments, in any case. But most of the people are having a hard time uh, related uh, as a consequence of uh, using psychedelic materials. And so a bunch of us are trained to be with them while they go through what they go through. Um, they're medically screened so that when they say, uh, I'm, I'm dying, we know that it's merely ego death, <laughs> that they're actually physically not in danger. In any case, there was a retraining of those of us who do this kind of sitting. And in this big meeting, um, Rick Doblin happened to be standing by himself. And so I just went over and introduced myself and um, and we got to and told him how much I admired him and the work that he was doing. We got to talking and he said, what do you do for work? And I said, I'm a health economist. And he said, well, we we need you. And I said, great, you, you got me. I'm at a time in my life where I could um, uh, make time for this. And so so that marked a major shift in my um, professional focus and the psychedelic economics work took on an increasingly large uh, part part of my time and, and, and energy. And, uh, and then about nine months ago or so, I decided to get serious about this. And what I mean by serious is I realized there's much more work than I could do by myself and that um, the importance of this work in terms of being able to increase access to effective psychedelic assisted um, uh, uh, therapies 
warranted a full-on center of some kind. And we started the Global Initiative for Psychedelic Science Economics, as you mentioned, at UC Berkeley and UCSF. It's a joint project. Um, and so we, we are now a network of researchers pushing the agenda forward for looking at the economics of psychedelic therapies. That is very, very, very inspiring, actually. Um, it's uh, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the Zendo Institute. I've actually been dabbling with them myself. I've read their Zendo Project Manual and the Manual of, of uh, Psychedelic Support. I'd wish uh, we had more time to go into that and into ego death, um, but this isn't really the main topic of this episode. And um, actually, let's get into it. Before... Um, Directly before recording, uh, Elliot, you sent us um, an article that just 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 came out that you were uh, interested in sharing. Um, would you mind talking about it a bit? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm delighted to talk about it. So um, that article uh, came out, I don't know, 48 hours ago or so, and it, it, it's a work of our of our group here, um, and it is the cost of so it addresses the cost effectiveness of MDMA-assisted therapy for severe or extreme PTSD. And what's significant about it is it's the first cost-effectiveness analysis of a psychedelic therapy based on phase three data. So we published an earlier study that found very favorable cost-effectiveness based on the pooled results of six phase two trials of MDMA to treat PTSD. But this is more definitive, it's phase three, and it also looks at a more costly regimen. The phase two regimen had two psychedelic sessions, two eight hour sessions. The phase three regimen is a three eight hour session regimen, plus wraparound therapy before and after. And so one of the questions we were interested in was, is the extra eight-hour session, again, this is with two highly trained therapists, so, you know, not, not cheap, is it worth the extra money? In other words, does the extra benefit that seems to uh, be associated with, with that extra regimen, is that, yeah, is, is that a good use of money? And, and the answer to that is yes. So this study reinforces our earlier findings that MDMA therapy for this highly affected group of people with PTSD um, is not only cost-effective, but cost-saving over time. And, uh, and that's a very robust finding. You can take issue with any number of our assumptions and inputs into the model. All models have uncertainty, of course, and, but I would assert that um, any reasonable, plausible set of input values is going to, is going to yield highly cost-effective or cost-saving outcome. Okay, uh, that's actually very, very, very interesting. The project, the MDMA-assisted project, the research, was it conducted, of course, uh, you were a big part of it, but was it officially a part of Gypsy? No, it wasn't. We, we began it before Gypsy became an official entity. Okay. Um, so, so technically, no, it's not part of Gypsy, um, but it's, you know, it is inspired by the same thing that inspired Gypsy. So, you know, technically, legally, no, it's not part of Gypsy, but in every other way, it's part of the, uh, as I said, the inspiration that we're, we're trying to move forward here. And um, may I ask, Doctor, about, um, about that inspiration that unites these two projects and about the methods of, of achieving this, these inspirations, these goals, these big goals, as a health economist in particular? How do you go on by doing that? 
So there's been a large body or increasingly large body of clinical research that shows that these interventions are effective uh, and very effective compared with uh, standard of care in many cases, particularly and with MDMA for PTSD is the most advanced of the um, clinical trials that are that are underway. Um, but it's, it's showing up in um, psilocybin to treat major depression, psilocybin to treat um, tobacco addiction, and many other combinations of materials and psychiatric interventions. So there's lots of evidence for clinical effectiveness, but nobody was doing anything on economics, really. And, and particularly, they weren't doing cost-effectiveness analysis. And I believe that cost-effectiveness analysis is extremely important uh, if third-party payers, insurance companies, be they private or you know, public third-party payers like you know, Medicaid or Medicare in the United States, um, they need to know what the effect on their budget is going to be on their bottom line. On, you know, what is the break-even time of investment in um, psychedelics? Will it save money? Or if it doesn't save money, which is okay, is it a good use of money? And so while it is not sufficient to get insurers to agree to include psychedelic therapies as a benefit, um, I believe it is necessary that that information be out there. So as these materials become decriminalized, and it's, of course, legally possible to, to provide them as a treatment, um, that they have the information they need to make an informed decision about, the, uh, about how it will affect their finances. And there's a broader sort of agenda here that I think is moved forward by the cost-effectiveness analysis, which is um, to uh, get the word out, it's, it's sort of advocacy, to get, to get the word out that, um, that hard-headed people are looking at this and finding that they are not only uh, effective therapy, but that they could be good for um, the health care spending, that it could, it could save money. Um, so, it, you know, as part of the general advocacy for uh, laying the groundwork for acceptance of these therapies, I think, I think cost-effectiveness analysis can also play a role. Thank you so much. Um... This is quite insightful, and I'm, I want to touch on my next question that immediately comes to mind, and I think Joel would agree that uh, to, to say that you definitely set this one up uh, beautifully. We, you talk about the legal aspect of these psychedelic trials and decriminalization, and you also take, talk about your research trials. But then what I wonder, and what Joel definitely wonders too, is What obstacles do you face, notably from government sides, on setting up your research trials with these still uh, criminalized substances? And what problems do you have to overcome to do your trials effectively? Yeah, well, I'm a lucky person because I actually don't have to deal with any of those issues. I am not, I am not a clinical trial, a trialist. I think that's a word. Um, so I don't, um, I don't organize or sponsor or, or direct clinical trials. Mm -hmm. I get the benefit of the hard work of the people who do those trials. And so uh, they provide the effectiveness part of the cost-effectiveness modeling that we do. So again, so I don't face those issues, but I would say that in, I'm going to speak for the United States because I 
don't know enough about what's going on in Europe, although right. I'm very interested in, in learning more. But speaking for the United States, it looks like the dam is kind of bursting, <laughs> you know, in terms of acceptance of research in this area and funding for it. So, for example, I think it's very significant that Johns Hopkins uh, Psychedelic Science Center got a $4 million grant from NIH recently to look specifically at uh, tobacco cessation uh, and, and psilocybin. Uh, and so that helps create, you know, that helps, uh, uh, again, break, break the dam. Um, the private sector is very interested, as I'm, I'm sure you know, and funding, funding research as well. And then there are these academic centers, which are funded uh, by philanthropy and also by some private money as well. Uh, that are moving forward. And uh, I, I would hazard to say that the resistance to, to this research, getting approval for it, is getting easier and easier. And it may, in fact, be the, the, at the case where, you know, uh, the, the level of acceptance is now high enough that people can do trials if they're, you know, well, well organized, of course, and um, good science, and they can get approval to, to move forward. It's very, very, very interesting um, that you're talking about the current wave into acceptance of uh, such trial with the, such uh, prohibited substances, and that right now the funding is coming through, the research is coming through. But as we discussed before this interview, the research is still somewhat limited into physical diseases because, as you um, as you said, that health economists right now they uh, the current utility indices that they rely on are not an adequate measure of the complete benefits of uh, psychedelic usage. Um, now, could you, spit it, uh, could you speak a bit about what these indices are, how they are lacking, and uh, what maybe some of the alternatives that you're looking into are? Yeah, yeah, no, I'd be happy to. So cost-effectiveness analysis is kind of our bread and butter. Uh, we, we will always be doing it. There will be need for it as more... Uh, molecules come online paired with more psychiatric indications, paired with more risk groups within that psychiatric indication. So if you do the multiplication, that's a whole lot of potential studies uh, where you know we really need to understand cost and, and cost effectiveness. But one of the reasons I'm so attracted to this field is that it raises profound uh Profound philosophical questions. I'm, I'm kind of a generalist by nature, and I, I, I like I like big ideas. And anyway, so one of the things about um, us health economists that's not great is that we measure well-being typically on a scale that goes from zero to one, where zero is represents death, and one represents something like the absence of disease. Now, in a way, that makes sense. These are health-related measures of well-being, but they ignore broader measures of well-being. In other words, people value other things besides health in life, right? Of course, yeah. Uh, we don't capture that. And at the same time, there's been a tremendous uh, uh, body of work over the last oh, I don't know, at least 20 years, I don't know exactly where the origins of it are, on happiness, the, the measurement and determinants of happiness. In other words, positive states of well-being beyond uh, just the absence of disease. So the way it is now, let's say 
you get out of bed in the morning and you're inspired about the day and you're you you greet your partner you know with affection and um, you have uh, 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 positive relationships with friends and you're inspired by your work and you and you have no you know clinical depression or anything like that right I'm describing somebody who's in good shape and happy. And I get out of bed in the morning. I also have no diagnosis. I'm not depressed, but it's kind of like I drag myself out of bed and I don't really say, I don't really greet my partner. I'm just sort of tolerating, you know, their presence. And work looks like kind of a slog to me. And uh, so you get my point, right? These are two very different ways of being. And yet both of them, potentially could have a rating of 1.0, a utility of 1.0. So um, that seems to me a limitation of the way we health economists think about health states. And uh, so uh, we're working with um, Dr. Keltner uh, at UC Berkeley, who's, who's one of the happiness experts, and, and others, David Yadam at Johns Hopkins, on thinking about how to integrate some of the scales that they have developed that capture positive states like awe and wonder and increased access to compassion, uh, connection with nature, uh, a sense of self-efficacy. So these positive states, how do we bring that into the way we measure well-being in cost-effectiveness analysis and sort of health economic evaluation more generally? And there's really, I mean, first, I was motivated by this because I think this is a hypothesis. We haven't demonstrated this, but the hypothesis is that a scale that's limited to 1.0 will underestimate the benefits of psychedelics because we know people report these positive health states. Now, I want to be clear. I am not talking about the acute effects of the psychedelic. I, I'm not talking about how, feel, how people feel when they're under the influence of, let's say, psilocybin. I'm talking about longer term um, changes in their report of their well-being. So on the one hand, I was concerned we may be underestimating the effects of psychedelics. Um, and then, you know, it raises the broader question, positive health states obviously are not uh, limited to exposure to psychedelics. They can arise from any number of practices. And so, there's this broader question about how do we adopt this more holistic, comprehensive sense of welfare into health economic evaluation? And we don't have the answer to that yet. We, we're, we're, we're like, so for example, do we, do we stay within zero to one, but somehow include these positive states? Or do we go say, well, actually there's states like 1.1 or 1.2. So there's, there's methodological questions we haven't figured out yet. Um, but, uh, but, but we're determined to do so. And um, we have an opportunity to test some of these new instruments that we're developing in the context of trials that are uh, being planned for Brazil, um, led by Eduardo Schenberg there. And he's very interested in this work, has been very supportive, and we're, we're um, grateful to him that, that he's making space to test these instruments, these new instruments, in the context of trials in Brazil. And we hope to have opportunities to do that in the United States as well. If I'm not mistaken, you're interested right now in 
the impact of non-clinical psychedelic usage, especially in, uh, in a certain population. Um, could you tell us what exactly this research question is and speak to us a bit about it? Yeah, so I'm particularly excited about this, and it's, it is different from the kind of work that I have been doing up to this point, um, which is really looking at a lot of it is on, on cost effectiveness. Um, so I saw repeated articles that suggest that people have positive mental and physical health outcomes. Uh, subsequent to using psychedelics in non-clinical settings. So, um, so this is interesting, and it's also policy-relevant because psychedelics is having a moment in our culture, certainly in the United States, and I, I think also in Europe. I see you nodding, so okay. Yeah, so um, at the moment, there is uh, a lot of positive media uh, reporting on psychedelics, um, sort of enthusiastic reports of the positive results that are coming from the trials. Um, and uh, people are using them increasingly uh, in their personal lives, that is to say, outside of uh, clinical settings. And uh, the question that occurs to me is, is that good? Is it bad? Um, this is a significant this is a significant trend. Um, and uh, I think we can expect it to continue. In other words, that the, the, the number of people, the proportion of people who are using psychedelics in their personal lives, um, can, we can expect that to increase. So what are the public health uh, harms or benefits of that? And so I was seeing research that uh, reports on uh, outcomes of people, again, using psychedelics in non-clinical settings. Most of it is positive. That is, most of these articles report that people are reporting that they're in a better mood. They score higher on instruments that measure various aspects of well-being, openness. Oh, oh. People who uh, are, could be diagnosed as having depression based on instruments that are administered as part of these studies, afterwards, they have a much lower levels of depressive symptoms, for example. And there are some interesting behavioral outcomes, too, um, in terms of lower incidence of domestic violence, uh, lower incidence of recidivism among uh, people released from incarceration who use psychedelics. Now, a lot of this is not very compelling in a way because they're just cross-sectional studies. It's self-report. They're methodologically um, unable to establish causality, right? I mean, it could be that people who use psychedelics are healthier, both you know, in terms of mental health or physical health. Um, rather than the use of psychedelics causing these health benefits. But other of these studies um, do have some reasonable controls and are methodologically um, more interesting in terms of possibly establishing a causal connection. So we want to answer three questions. One is, what does the evidence currently say about the association between psychedelic use in non-clinical settings and 
health outcomes, both mental and physical. Um, so how strong is the association? Which trends are negative? Which trends are positive? Um, and just to, to document that in a detailed way by doing a systematic review of the available literature. So that's question number one. So how strong is the association and what is the association and the direction of that association? Question number two is how likely is that association to be causal? And um, so we, we plan to use various criteria for assessing the probability that an association is in fact causal. Um, we can never prove it, but I think the question is, what does the preponderance of the evidence suggest about the likelihood that the relationship that we see is causal, i.e. that the use of psychedelics um, in, in non-clinical uh, settings uh, leads to various health outcomes, be they positive or negative. And then the third question, which we may not be able to answer, we are not far enough into the study to know whether we'll be able to answer it. But the third question, and this brings us back to sort of health economics is, okay, um, assuming there are uh, significant associations with positive or negative health outcomes, and there's good reason to believe that, th that these outcomes are caused by the use of psychedelics uh, can we model the population health impacts and economic impacts of that? So if it turns out that people uh, have lower risk of diabetes or cardiovascular disease uh, following use of psychedelics, can we cost that? Like how much money would be saved? How many lives would be saved? How many quality adjusted life years gained? So I, I say this with hesitation because it's just... Uh, an idea. It's a question that we hope to be able to address, and I can't tell you whether we'll be in a position to do that. It's too, it's too early. Um, we're in the late stages of developing our protocol for the systematic review, and um, we'll be jumping into searching the literature in a systematic way soon. But I'm really excited about the work, um, and. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I see it as sort of anticipating a question that, you know, that is important for public policy and public opinion. Like, what, what are the effects of, again, increased, increased use of these materials in the, in the general public? Oh, wow. Thank you very much. You actually touched on so many points we wanted to know from you already in just one answer. One thing that we wanted as, I would say, also, you know, young economic students who live in a student environment is to get a personal opinion from your side on the current laws and policies concerning psychedelic and MDMA usage. And we wanted to know also your view on how these could change in the near future, based also on the trend you've been mentioning that psychedelic have gained quite a lot of uh, support in different uh, also academic fields over the last few years. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, so again, unfortunately, I'm, I'm going to have to confine my comments to the United States. I don't follow what's happening in Europe closely enough. Obviously, no problem. Again, I would use a sort of dam, dam bursting metaphor if I could. I mean, I just, um, so uh, 
First of all, there's a climate of acceptance now. I'm just talking about sort of public opinion more broadly that I don't think was uh, um, didn't didn't exist 10 or, or 15 years ago. Um, and that has translated into legislation and policy. Uh, the most obvious and sort of immediately important of which is the de decriminalization of psilocybin use in Oregon um, and, and the decriminalization of uh, possession of small amounts of, of, other, um, of other drugs as well. So um, in about a year's time, don't hold me to this, but something like that, um, Oregon uh, make, will, will uh, allow for the use of psychedelics in facilities um, where you know, people can pay to, um, to use these materials in a structured setting with trained, uh, with trained personnel, and they don't need a psychiatric diagnosis. In other words, if you want to go for personal exploration or you're having some difficulty in your life that you want to explore and hopefully resolve and address, and you think a supported psychedelic experience could help you with that, that that is now, that will be available. So this is an experiment. Um, this is, this is uh, new, new territory. I think it's very exciting. Um, there are concerns that it be done right, that the people who, um, uh, the, they're not therapists necessarily, but the people who are trained to support people in these experiences, that they're well-trained um, and um, that it's all ethically conducted and that people have access to it too. I mean, I think there's a concern that at least at the beginning, it's not going to be paid for by insurance. Um, and so uh, it's going to be available mainly to more affluent people. Um, I, don't see, I don't see a way around that right now, at least you know, for, for the beginning. I think that's the way it's going to be. Um, so there's many issues of sort of equity and access and safety um, that needs to, it needs to be done right. Um, while we're having a great moment of support for psychedelics and psychedelic therapy, that can change very quickly. Public opinion can change very quickly. Um, the way the media reports can change very quickly. Um, it might be, it might attract more attention. So, you know, for in the past, psychedelics were considered well, actually, let me let me sort of trace this trajectory just because I think it's kind of fun, um, and I'll bring in something about my personal life as well. My father was a psychoanalyst, and in the late '50s and early '60s, he was using LSD with some of his patients in the course of their therapy, and this was a time when. Um, there was the media reporting on psychedelics was very positive. Uh, movie stars like Cary Grant were coming out and talking about the benefit that they got from it. And uh, there was sort of a, this excitement. It was very positive. Um, and then um, that got shut down with the war on drugs. And um, President Nixon famously said that Timothy Leary was the most dangerous man in America. And you can laugh at that. 
And I do laugh at that. But there was also some truth to it because after people used LSD, some of them, many of them, said things like, now explain to me again why I'm supposed to go to Vietnam and kill people who have never threatened me or threatened my family. Explain to me again how I'm supposed to devote my life to climbing some soulless corporate ladder. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, so, uh, so there was the sense that psychedelics really were subversive to uh, the existing structure, let's say. So, so uh, anyway, and, uh, and so, you know, research was, was shut down. It became illegal. People were sentenced to long terms in jail for possessions of small amounts of LSD and so forth. Um, and, uh, and so then, through the hard work of people like Rick Doblin, uh, most notably, but many others as well, there's been... Um, a resurgence of interest because the research now is FDA-approved, randomized, uh, placebo-controlled clinical trials. We're we're by the book. We're not wild-eyed hippies. We're serious clinicians, and we're we're establishing the effectiveness in the most rigorous possible way. And so the media is now like, Oh, well, psychedelics were considered dangerous and terrible. There were these reports of people um, burning their retinas from staring at the sun. These stories mainly apocryphal, but you know, that was kind of the, the media image. But now you get more media attention if you say, hey, look, psychedelics can be beneficial. That's interesting now. That's new, right? Uh, and so that's the moment we're in. But um, there could be there could be a backlash. Uh, you know, uh, stories of abuse may may surface, um, and uh, uh, negative outcomes, uh, you know, adverse events that people will inevitably experience, as as part of some people will experience, could become sensationalized. So, um, so we're we're in this moment, and uh, I think we should, you know, prepare for what could be, uh, you know, a, a reversal. And just to return to my to my, my earlier statement, like getting information out there about the effect of psychedelics in non-clinical settings in general population may help inoculate us against a potential backlash. Um, you know, I like to, I like to think that 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 could be of some of some service. Elliot, I'd love to ask you a question, which isn't particularly technical, but you said that you. Uh that you like to dabble in philosophy. And so um, I'd love to get uh, your opinion on this. Um, while you were talking, I was thinking, um, okay, what if uh, psychedelics did indeed continue this upward trends of becoming more accepted and more used in non-clinical uh, situations? Could that maybe lead to a shift in the way we approach economics? And not just not just as economists, but as the general public as well. Could we maybe see a shift towards greener economics? Could people maybe start saying, oh, okay, tell me again why we're letting uh, this company get away with this. Tell me again why there aren't more stricter policies on pollution or whatever or whatnot. Do you think it could have that impact or uh, do you think this is taking it a bit too far? Yeah, wow. What a, what a great question and what a difficult one to answer. You know, <laughs> I, back in the 60s, when the first psychedelic renaissance, let's call it, I mean, I, I don't think it's an accident that um, 
the peace movement in the United States and the move toward um, healthier eating um, and interest in meditation, which has health benefits, um, interest in, uh, yeah, so, so health promotion uh, and, and healthy activities. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it was a package that kind of came with psychedelics. Um, and so whether we see a shift in opinion, attitudes, behaviors, uh, wow, you know, I think I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> I just think we don't, we don't know. We, we don't know yet. Um, and I certainly, I certainly don't think that the use of psychedelics by itself is, uh, you know, going to revolutionize human consciousness and make us more ecologically sensitive and, and uh, you know, less prejudiced and more loving. Um, I, I, yeah, no, I, I don't think by itself, uh, but it could be an enabling factor for many people who are motivated to make those changes anyway. I'll go that far. Well, let me say, this is, I'm very excited to ask this next question right now. Um, this is a trademark of the show. Uh, Dr. Ali, I'm not sure if you know, but I'm still new to this uh, podcast and uh, I never really got to ask this question, except for today, you ask it to all of our guests. Um, Elliot, is the economy stupid? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I really don't think so. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I'm taking your question to mean, actually, I'm not quite sure. Like, are you asking whether I think that the study of uh, of economics is stupid, or because yeah, yeah, my entire my entire professional life in that case would have been wasted. <laughs> I do think economic analysis has a contribution to make to to policy. Um, in fact, I think it has a big contribution to make to policy. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, I'll I'll, I'll 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 stand I'll stand by that. Um, and you know, like like any other. Uh, set of ideas or techniques. Um, there's, you know, high quality research, and there's research that's not so good, and there's research that um, is uh, sort of organized to prove a, a, a thesis that's been decided on in advance. And these are all these are all dangers that affect economic analysis as well as many other fields. Um, I think because economics may tend to affect policy more directly than many other fields, that people can be a little suspicious of it. Um, and I understand that, and that's that's appropriate. Um, so, uh, but I, I do think, on balance, it has a big contribution to make. Was that did that answer your question? Is that what that was perfect? Indeed, 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 it did. Yeah, the, the thing was that question is it's so open, but it's just the title of our podcast, so that's. And really to your own interpretation to, you know, understand what we mean by it, because there's not a, a, a set meaning. So every answer is always great and uh, amuses us uh, by our guests. So thank you very much. Um, I think uh, a quote by uh, Keynes, actually, that uh, builds on your answer of uh, maybe economists. When you said that maybe economists are sometimes... Um, because their policies have such a wide effect that they're taken uh, lightly or they're mocked of. But Keynes said that uh, practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt 
from any intellectual influence are usually the slaves of some uh, defunct economist. Um, I think that speaks volumes, especially to your answer. Um, and Elliot Marseille, thank you so much for being uh, such a wise guest and your expertise and your knowledge. Truly, thank you for uh, taking the time to share this with us and to our listeners. Oh, you're very kind, and I, and I appreciate the opportunity. It's great. Thank you. We're already arriving to the end of this inf interview, unfortunately. But as Joe has already mentioned, and you have mentioned uh, even more, you're very active currently in the field, and you're, you're uh, publishing in all directions. So maybe for our listeners who would want to learn more about your work, about you know, not on, maybe not only your work, but just more generally about the, the current studies that are going on about psychedelics, could you maybe give us some platforms and some ways for them to be informed about the subjects that you're writing on? Yeah, but, so I'm going to shamelessly um, uh, promote the article I mentioned that just came out. Um, it's called Updated Cost-Effectiveness of MDMA-Assisted Therapy for the Treatment of Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder in the United States, Findings from a Phase Three Trial. It's published in PLOS One. Um, so if you, if you punch MDMA cost-effectiveness uh, into Google, that will probably bring it up right there. Again, published in PLOS One. Um, put my name, Marseille, and that'll help bring it up, too. So there's that. Uh, for um, uh, There's a fantastic book. I, you know, I don't know. I assume it's been translated into multiple languages because it's a huge bestseller in the United States. Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind. Uh, fantastic sort of survey of his his adventures um, at, you know with with psychedelics he writes about the psychedelic state as beautifully as anybody um, people who say well you know you just can't put it in words yeah they haven't read Michael Pollan uh, and so anyway it's an excellent book and it covers uh, in a thoughtful and balanced way the the potential you know benef benefits of psychedelics um, so I highly recommend that that book and then in terms of just kind of keeping up with what's going on there's many newsletters many organizations that are providing information it's not hard to find but um, you know I'm partial to maps um, so maps multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies And they have updates on current research and legal issues and, I mean, really broadly looking at what's happening in the field. So that's a great place to start is the MAPS website. It was a pleasure for both of us. And I want to thank again, both, definitely you, Professor Marseille, uh, for your intervention. I want to thank definitely Joe, because for our listeners to peel back the curtain a bit, Joe did a great work in organizing this interview. It wasn't easy because both him and I were having difficulties along the way. And uh, Professor Marseille is our first guest with a totally different time zone. So that was also not that easy to organize, but we're happy that he was able to also make it a bit easier for us. And we want to thank uh, our editor, Domenico, who's been doing an amazing job uh, during the second season of the podcast and without whom this entire project wouldn't be possible for, for this year. So thanks to him again. And as always, this was Damien. This was Is the Economy Stupid? by Rethinking Economics Italia. Goodbye and carpe diem. Goodbye for now.